Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Brunei, officially known as the Nation of Brunei, the abode of peace, is a tiny sultanate country located on the largest Asian island, the island of Borneo in Southeast Asia. Its geographical location is a bit interesting. While it is facing the South China Sea on one side, all its other sides are enveloped by the Malaysian state, Sarawak. Also, Brunei is not one continuous piece of country. It is actually two pieces of land, on the Borneo Island. So imagine this big island that is 90% Malaysian and Indonesian territory, and a piece on the top right edge is randomly carved out. That would be Brunei. Size-wise, it is around 2,200 square miles, and population as of recent is around 440,000. Brunei is small, and while it is about 8 times bigger than Singapore, Singapore has about 5 million plus more people. Anyway, Brunei is quite multi-ethnic. Malay is considered the official language. While English is also a recognized language, there are tons of other languages and dialects that are used, such as Mandarin Chinese, Cantonese, Tutong, Brunei Malay, etc. Ethnic group-wise, about two-thirds are Malaysian, and the rest are made up of indigenous people and other ethnic groups. Religion-wise, about 80% of the population follow the Sunni Islam, and the rest follow Christianity, Buddhism, and other indigenous or local religions. The capital city of Brunei is Bandar Seri Bagawan, and it is also the largest city in Brunei. So a bit on the history of Brunei. Ancient history is a bit difficult to come by, so I'll tell you what I have. There is evidence showing that humans have been around Brunei since 40,000 years ago. Despite not having much information on the earlier days, there are records showing communication and trade with other Asian countries around the year 518 CE. A lot of Brunei's history is reliant on Chinese records, and in one entry from 977 CE, an independent kingdom called Boni was mentioned in a letter, and that is believed to be a pre-Brunei state. While the state of Boni was known to be wealthy and impressive at first, it became known as quite the opposite after an attack from the Sulus. They were basically left broke as fuck and under the control of the Majapahit Empire, 
which was a Javanese Hindu empire that existed between the 13th and 16th century. Brunei history can kind of be divided into two parts, pre- and post-Islam, and everything I mentioned earlier was pre-Islam. Boni became an Islamic state around the 14th century, and they then became known as the Independent Sultanate of Brunei in the 15th century. During this time, Brunei controlled large areas of the Borneo Island, and even extending their control to the Philippines. But remember what I always say, history is never complete without some form of Western colonization or influence. The Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British, they all came along at some point, and Brunei began to lose control of what they once had. Brunei went to war with Spain after they had comfortably settled in the Philippines, and aside from the basic conquering more land motive, a shady deal was actually being struck between two parties. At the time in Brunei, there was some conflict as to who the appointed and rightful sultan of Brunei should be, and a deal was made between those that wanted power and the Spanish fleet. The overthrowing party would work with the Spanish fleet to bring down the current Brunei leader, and once the Spanish fleet took over, they would then become the sultan. After 72 days of invasion, the Spanish fleet were like, fuck this. They retreated because they were not prepared for a number of diseases. But before leaving, they made sure they ruined a very sacred place. A five-tier roof mosque. Moving on, the British came around and decided that they had a say in who was the rightful Sultan of Brunei. They continued to take more and more land from Brunei, and eventually a treaty of protection was signed, where it literally gave the British power to dictate Brunei's external affairs. As in, anything Brunei did with any other country had to go through them first. Brunei became smaller and smaller, and eventually in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was left with what we currently know as present-day Brunei, that little chunk of land. World War II came around, and yes, Japan took over Brunei and heavily influenced the country. Japan officially left Brunei after the Australian and American units arrived in 1945, when the war finally ended. Even after the war, the British continued to boss Brunei around for many more decades. Brunei declared its independence once and for all in the year 1984. The Proclamation of Independence was read by the Sultan, Hassanal Bolkla, on New Year's Day which is a pretty cool way to start the year. A bit about the country's religion. Brunei's main religion is Islam, and in the year 2013, the Sharia law and the penal code were both put into effect. What exactly does this mean? Well, people engaging in homosexuality and those who commit adultery are going to be heavily punished, and that punishment could even result in death. Homosexuality was already frowned upon before this, but the punishment wasn't anything close to death. Also, it doesn't matter who you are. As long as you are on Brunei soil, if they find you sinning like that, you could be whipped or stoned to death. As you can imagine, the international communities were very much against this type of punishment as it is considered cruel and inhumane. But Brunei has responded by saying that this is not about punishment, but more about prevention. The Minister of Foreign Affairs stated that the Sharia laws, quote, aim is to educate, deter, rehabilitate, and nurture, end quote. He also stated that homosexuality isn't a crime, but, quote, 
adultery and sodomy is to safeguard the sanctity of family lineage and marriage of individual Muslims, particularly women. End quote. Anyway, there is a whole bunch more to this topic, and you should definitely look into it as it is way more complex than it sounds. Here are some other interesting facts about Brunei you probably would never hear about. Brunei is actually classified as a developed country. A huge chunk of the country's income comes from its oil and natural gas production, and it is actually ranked as the fifth richest country because of its gas and oil. On the other hand, Brunei doesn't really grow most of their foods, so they rely heavily on imported agricultural products. Culture-wise, Brunei is basically known as a more conservative and more Islamic Malaysia, and probably not surprising to hear that it is also heavily influenced by Malaysia and Indonesia. As for tourism, a word that is very foreign and very strange in 2020, the internet highly recommends visiting the capital city of Bandar Seri Bagawan and the mosque located there, the water village of Kapong Ayer, and the main shopping area known as Gadong. Maybe when the world settles back into pre-2020 times, you could try visiting all these countries I've covered so far. Okay, so this episode is going to be slightly different from my previous country-focused episodes. I really wanted to discuss small and lesser-known countries in Asia, but at the same time I had a way harder time finding information on these countries and also crime stories to tell. At least, not one with enough information that could be a full-length episode. So instead, I have decided to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Instead of one big story, I am going to give you three smaller stories. I apologize if this isn't the format you wanted, but on the bright side, it's only going to happen maybe a few times. And now, let's move on to the first case of this episode. One of the last things you ever want to do on Valentine's Day is to file a missing persons report for your spouse. But unfortunately, this was the case for 48-year-old Wang Po Yen in the year 2013. Wang was living in Brunei with his 39-year-old Malaysian wife, Vun Su Ching, and their son when she suddenly vanished one day. According to the husband, Vun had left their home earlier in the day to get a birthday cake for their son, but she never returned. Sounds fishy, doesn't it? Are you immediately thinking that the husband probably did something and then reported her missing? Well, this is a very logical way to think. Statistically speaking, when a husband or a wife goes missing or is murdered, their spouse is usually involved. But hey, not always. And in this case, not the husband. The police arrived and began to look for clues, questioning the husband and anyone that they considered relevant to the case. A few days later... Everyone was still completely baffled. Did Voon run away? Was she kidnapped? I feel like solving this case was way more of a when rather than if. So in other words, there was no way anyone could have missed finding Voon eventually. So here's a tidbit no one really knew about Voon. Voon had a friend named Mary, and around February in 2013, Mary decided to travel home to Malaysia for Chinese New Year's holidays. Since Mary was going to be gone for a while, she gave her spare keys to Voon, basically asking her friend to be a part-time house sitter. Okay, cool. Easy peasy, right? So eventually Mary returned to her home in Brunei, and once she was back home, she noticed there was a weird smell coming from... somewhere. 
Not sure where. She also noticed that there was a weird cement block on her property, and she knew for sure that that thing was not there when she left for her holidays. She tried to contact her friend Voon, but unbeknownst to her, Voon had been missing for a few days already. Finally, she managed to get in touch with Voon's husband, Wang, and that's when he found out that his wife had a spare key to Mary's house. He went over to check on that weird cement block she mentioned, and also to update her on Voon's disappearance. Wang noticed the smell as well, and after checking around the property, he managed to find out the company that the cement belonged to. Maybe there was a discarded bag or a receipt or something? So he called them up and asked them if they've made a delivery to Mary's address recently. The company confirmed it, and provided Wang a phone number and a name of the person who had made the purchase. The name was Ali Ahmad, which later turned out to be a fake name. But the phone number happened to be real. So you see why this case was bound to be solved? Now let's talk about what happened and what was inside the cement block. Wong called the number and this Ali Ahmad picked up. At the same time, Wong also notified the police of his findings and of his suspicions. It's really mind-boggling, but this Ali Ahmad guy not only picked up the phone, he admitted to his cement order, and he also agreed to meet Wong at Mary's house. So now it's just a happy reunion of the police, cement order guy, husband, and property owner Mary. The police were surprised to see Cement Guy there because they had actually questioned him days ago. They noticed Cement Guy and Voon had contacted each other on the day that she went missing, but he told police that they were just friends and only called to wish each other a happy Chinese New Year. Was that a lie? Ali Ahmad's real name was Haji Harith, and here is what happened. Voon and Harith, despite both being married, were actually secretly seeing each other. On the day Voon disappeared, she had actually made plans to see her lover at Mary's house. It makes sense. It's secretive, it's convenient, and best of all, it's totally free. But what they couldn't imagine happening was Voon suddenly collapsing during their secret rendezvous. Some say it was during adult fun time. Maybe she was having too much fun, but honestly, that's not the point. Because it doesn't matter what they were doing. They just weren't supposed to be together like that. So if you were in his shoes, what would you do? Tricky, isn't it? If he reports it, he will be seen as a killer. That would mean everyone finding out about the affair, right? Well, he probably panicked and did everything he shouldn't have done. According to news sources, he first tried to carry her body to the car, but after realizing he wasn't able to, he decided to dump her in a ditch on Mary's property. He thought that would do, but since Voon was quickly reported as a missing person, the police got in touch with him. He lied about the nature of their relationship and their call, so he got nervous and went back to Mary's house a day or so later. He took Voon's credit card and ordered a bunch of cement to be delivered to the property. They arrived on February 16th, two days after she died. They filled the ditch with cement and also sprinkled some rocks and stones on top. Harith also tipped them generously, with Voon's money, of course. Her car was abandoned behind an electrical power station, and her belongings were left around the supermarket. He even cleaned and wiped the house down before leaving. Yes, he definitely wanted to try and get away with it. 
But was he capable? I don't think so. To be fair, I think most of us wouldn't be able to think clearly under these circumstances and would very likely end up doing really dumb things. Fire and rescue services came out to Mary's house and began to work on that cement block. Hours later, Voon's body was recovered, and after conducting a post-mortem examination, it was determined that Voon had no physical injuries on her. But since her body had already started to decompose, it was also difficult to tell what could have possibly gone wrong. So it could or could not have been a heart attack or some other sudden illness. In other words, the police believe that Harith most likely did not kill or cause Voon any physical injuries. Harith admitted guilt and pleaded guilty for his crimes, including the concealment of a corpse. The court believed he showed genuine remorse. I guess since it couldn't be proved that he killed her, he received a rather light sentence. He got six months and a hefty fine. Oh, and he also apologized to Voon's family, as it was never his intention to cause such harm. Ah, and yet, such harm was caused. Anyway, I'm actually a bit surprised. I'd think as an adulterer he would have gotten a rougher sentence, but I guess not. Now, on to case number two. This is a weird case as well, and scarily enough, it could happen to any one of us. So, sometimes when you're bored and you're single, you might think to yourself, hmm, I should go on a date, or hmm, I would like to get laid. That's totally normal and a lot of us have done it. Say you find someone you want to meet up with on a dating app, or maybe you're just looking for something quick and easy, someone you can pay and get stuff done with. But what if the person you're supposed to meet looks nothing like their photo, or even worse, is not the person you thought you were meeting? The day was May 20th, 2015. A man named Ispawi bin Idris had arranged a meetup with a woman he only knew of as Miza. They were going to exchange money for sex despite the fact that Ispawi was a married man. But then again, I don't know what kind of marriage he had so I will refrain from judgment. Sometime in the afternoon of May 20th, Ispawi drove to Miza's house and knocked on the door. Instead of a woman answering, it was a man. The man introduced himself as Misa's brother and proceeded to invite Ispawi into the home, informing him that Misa was still getting ready. This is such a weird situation, but clearly not weird enough because Ispawi entered the home anyway. The brother offered him a glass of water, but Ispawi declined. He told the brother to tell Misa to hurry up, and the brother was like, sure, and went upstairs. He soon returned and told Ispawi that she was going to come down any second. But before Ispawi had the chance to meet Miza, he would end up dead on the floor in just a matter of minutes. What happened? So the man was not Miza's brother, nor was he her pimp. This Miza didn't even exist. Ispawi assumed he was chatting with a woman who had agreed to meet him for sex, and he had no idea that this was all a lie. In other words, he was catfished in the worst way possible. There were two men in the house waiting for Ispawi to show up, Muhammad Zulkifi bin Abdul Jalil and his friend Muhammad Hakimi Rizal bin Abdullah. Okay, so these two guys have very long names, and since they have the same name, I'm going to refer to them as Zulkifi and Hakimi from now on, just to avoid confusion. 
The two men set up a fake profile on a site called Asia Free Chat to lure men in with the intention of robbing and stealing from them. Ispawi, a man in his early 40s, ended up chatting with this fake woman and the two set up a time to meet the following day. After arriving, Zulkifi pretended to be the brother of Miza and asked Ispawi to take a seat. Zulkifi proceeded to put crushed up sleeping pills into a glass of water and offered it to Ispawi, but he didn't want it. I guess the plan initially was to knock him out, steal from him, and leave? But things did not seem to be going the way he expected it to, and once Ispawi got impatient, Zulkifi knew they were running out of time, but what can he do? This is when the other guy, Hakimi, crept up behind Ispawi and hit him over the head with a metal pipe. He hit him several times until Ispawi fell unconscious. If they wanted to just rob him, I guess they could have just knocked him unconscious, taken his belongings, and left. But no. They continued to bash his head in with a metal pipe, injected some weird weed cocktail into his body, and then hacked away at him with a machete. The escalation is real. The two scums took Ispawi's wallet, phone, and car keys, then loaded the body into the car, as in Ispawi's car. Hakimi got into the driver's seat and drove off, while Zulkifi got into another car and followed Hakimi. The two ended up dumping Ispawi's car in an empty parking lot with his body in the back seat. So, what now? Obviously, they're not very smart or organized criminals. They immediately headed to the bank and tried to withdraw money using the bank card, but to their dismay, Ispawi had no money in his card. I can't imagine how shocked and upset they must have felt at the time, going through all that trouble catfishing and killing a man just to end up with nothing. The catfish murder happened on May 20th, and a few days later, a terrible smell started to stink up the parking lot, making its way to a coffee shop nearby. An employee from the coffee shop was brave and curious, so they followed the smell and eventually found the dead body inside the car. What a shock that must have been. The police were immediately at the crime scene, and the body was swiftly taken away for an autopsy. Once they found the identity of the dead man, they traced his mobile phone records and digital activities, including his bank card. They got the camera footage from the bank, and that is how they identified and arrested the two thugs. Unfortunately, though, only one of them would end up on trial for the murder. The two men were arrested around the end of May, but Hakimi, the man who delivered the initial blow and the one who drove Ispawi's car, allegedly committed suicide on June 2nd while he was in police custody, just days after his arrest. I say allegedly because there seems to be some doubt as to whether it was suicide or possibly foul play, but in the reports, it states that it is suicide. Many others, though, believe that he was beaten to death by the police. But of course, the police denied this claim. Anyway, the other guy, Zulkifi, was sentenced to life imprisonment by the high court last year, as in 2019. Since he was sentenced for culpable homicide and not murder, he only got life imprisonment. Although the death penalty is a thing in Brunei, it actually hasn't been carried out at all in the past few decades. The Chief Justice stated that, quote, This is not a crime committed on impulse. The victim was deliberately lured to the house with the promise of sex as bait. The motive was to steal money from the victim. 
the defendant and co-defendant obtained sleeping pills, weed poison, and weapons to use on the victim. End quote. What do you think? Does the punishment fit the crime? There is a rumor that the two men, Hakimi and Zulkifi, were actually lovers, and they needed the money to deal with an illness. Then again, that's just rumor and hearsay, and it doesn't really excuse killing another man in such a brutal manner. Either way, the bad guy is behind bars, so hopefully that will serve as a warning to others who think about profiting this way. But of course, if you're planning on meeting strangers from the internet, do play it safe. Weirdos are everywhere. Now, on to our last case. This case is a bit different, as it involves Brunei and another country. While it may be considered unsolved to many people, to some, especially the victim's family, they feel like they know who the killer is, but sadly enough, there is nothing they can do at the moment. Let's start from the beginning. This case took place in the year 1994, and 26-year-old Anthea Bradshaw Hall, a schoolteacher from Adelaide, Australia, had just married her Australian husband, Jeff Hall. The two had been together for a while and were said to have been high school sweethearts. Jeff was working as a radiographer in Brunei, and as soon as the couple got married, Anthea decided that it would be a good idea to quit her teaching position back in Adelaide and maybe try to find a new teaching position in Brunei. Anyway, this should be one of the happiest times in their lives. Newly wed couple, finally moving in together, starting a life together. And yet, tragedy struck. Anthea had been visiting her husband in Brunei weeks after their wedding, and was due to fly home to Adelaide on July 22, 1994. Except, she wouldn't make it back home, because someone, somehow, decided that she had to die a very brutal death. What happened? A day before her departure on July 21st, 1994, well, it was like any other normal day. The couple woke up, they had breakfast together, hung out, had lunch, and Jeff left for work, leaving his wife alone in their apartment. By the end of the day, Anthea would be found dead in their bedroom. Cause of death was strangulation and multiple stab wounds to her chest and abdomen with a kitchen knife from their own kitchen. This was not something that happened often in a tiny country like Brunei, and it was also unlikely to occur where they lived, as it was considered something of an expat community. It was absolutely baffling to everyone. The police, of course, arrived and did their part. But please note, this investigation is not only frustrating, there is actually a lot of info missing. Most of the information I did find came from Australian sources, so this is something you should bear in mind. So, who would be the suspect in this case? Obviously, Jeff Hall, the husband. According to him, he had plans to meet his wife after his shift, but she never showed up to meet him. He went home and found her dead in their apartment, and that's when he called the police. The police looked around the apartment and noted that there did not seem to be any signs of a break-in, nor was anything stolen. This indicated that either the killer was someone she knew or had invited somebody in and they took advantage of the situation. But why? Nothing seemed to be disturbed in the apartment. Nothing was taken. It was not a robbery. Who could have wanted her dead? The Bradshaw family back in Adelaide received the news of their daughter and sister's murder, and understandably, 
they were all devastated. Anthea's autopsy revealed two important findings. She was not raped, and her stab wounds seemed to have been inflicted on her after she was already dead from strangulation. It seemed as if someone wanted to make it seem like she was stabbed to death, or maybe someone wanted to make sure she was dead and not just passed out. Also, strangling someone to death is a rather intimate way to kill someone. Maybe it was done to keep Anthea from screaming, as stabbing her with a knife from the start would have caused a lot of noise. Also, if it was an intruder coming in to kill her, wouldn't they have brought their own weapon and not look for a weapon in their house? I'm just speculating here, but it is interesting trying to figure out why someone would choose to do things a certain way. Anyway, the police clearly were quite suspicious of Jeff Hall as he was the husband and the last person to see her alive. The problem was that they never had any evidence to link him to the crime. Remember, this was 1994, and the police probably were not very prepared to handle something this big, especially something that involves citizens from other countries. The South Australia police were also trying to work the case from miles away, but due to geographical limitations, they were unable to make any calls. In the meantime, Jeff Hall has denied any involvement in the death of his wife, and the Bradshaw family seemed to have believed his innocence as well. For a while there, Anthea's family probably felt that Jeff Hall was also a victim in a sense, and I would understand if they saw him as a way to keep Anthea's memory alive. Anthea's official report was finally given to her family four years after her murder. Four years, though. That seems like an awful long time, but I suppose it would make sense if they were trying to follow up on every single lead before finalizing and sending it off. Well, here's where things get interesting. In the report, it stated what I mentioned earlier, that there was no sexual assault and did not seem like a robbery. But what stood out to the family was the name of the only suspect on the police's radar, Jeff Hall. The Brunei police were not the only ones, though. The South Australia police also felt that they had found proof that Jeff Hall was very likely the killer, and it was probably enough proof to take him into police custody. The only problem was that the Australian police did not have jurisdiction in Brunei, and the police and judge in Brunei stated that they did not find enough evidence to charge or convict Jeff Hall. What could be the reason for Jeff to want to kill his new wife, though? They've been dating for years known each other from school, and pretty positive they knew each other really well. Was one of them having an affair and somehow the other one found out? Or was there some huge secret that one of them was keeping and didn't want the other person knowing? In the meantime, the Bradshaw family continued to mourn for Anthea, and around this time, the widower Jeff Hall announced to everybody that he was actually gay. I bet none of you were expecting this, because I definitely wasn't. But I wonder if this new piece of information changes anything for you. Could he have killed her because he actually couldn't stand lying about his identity? Or did she find out and he killed her to prevent her from outing him? Or maybe him being gay had nothing to do with any of it. The Brunei police couldn't do anything else for the Bradshaws. The South Australia police, though, refused to give up on the case. They strongly believed their instincts and continued to work on it. Eventually, in 2004, an official investigation was finally launched by the South Australia Police Major Crime Investigation Branch, 
They flew a detective over to Brunei to do an in-depth investigation and to gather more evidence so they could examine everything again, but this time from Australia. The results again confirmed their initial suspicions. They still believe that Jeff Hall was and is the only suspect in the case, but the problem was still the same. This crime took place in Brunei, and the Australian police had no say and no power over this case. Major bummer. Over the years, the Bradshaw family did not mourn and try to move on with their lives. If anything, they continued to fight for an answer, and when no one was able to give them an answer, they fought for more ways to get an answer. You see, Division 115 of the Criminal Code Act makes it an, quote, offense to commit manslaughter, murder, intentional or reckless serious harm to Australians overseas, end quote. And although this could have been used for Anthea, this criminal code can only be applied for cases after 1995. Anthea Bradshaw Hall was unfortunately murdered in 1994, meaning it cannot be applied to her case. In the year 2013, the Bradshaw family made a plea to the government asking the government to make an amendment to the current legislation. Because the location of the crime was always an obstacle in the investigation, with this new proposed amendment, location would no longer be an issue as long as the persons involved were from Australia. Brunei refused to arrest or charge Jeff Hall, and for the longest time, Australia police had their hands tied despite wanting to charge Jeff Hall. With the help of the Bradshaws, a new bill was added into the criminal code, the Harming Australians Bill. So basically, if a terrible crime is committed against an Australian outside of Australia, seeking justice for them would now be much easier. Let's take a quick look at Jeff Hall, though. Aside from him coming out as gay, he has also left his position in Brunei. Not sure if he's still at this job, though, but apparently he had moved to Tokyo, Japan, and began working as an executive at Toshiba Medical Systems. He has not been in contact with the Bradshaws since around 2012, and when he was tracked down and asked about this case, he responded with, quote, Well, I've been through a lot, too. It's been very hard for me, end quote. I'm sorry, but what a prick. Even if he didn't kill his wife, who the hell says that? You've been through a lot? Cool, but I bet you haven't been strangled and stabbed to death. Either way, it sounds extremely cold and it certainly doesn't win him any sympathy points. Despite the amendment, though, it doesn't seem as if he has been arrested or charged with anything. I was unable to find anything recent about him, but Crime Stoppers South Australia still has a page for Anthea Bradshaw, and it was last updated in July of 2020. The word unsolved is actually stamped across the case photo, so I guess nothing ever really happened to Jeff Hall. Very sad, and I feel very, very bad for the family as they fought so hard and for so long. Do you think Jeff Hall was the killer? Or do you think it was somebody else entirely and he was not involved? Or could he have orchestrated something? So, there you have it. The lovely country of Brunei and three crime stories from that tiny country. Cement Lady Voon was very tragic and unfortunate, but I kind of do believe it was just an accident. Maybe her lover didn't kill her, but throwing her in the ditch, buying cement and burying her in cement, was a terrible move. Catfishing people should never be okay. I don't know, 
Unless you're an FBI agent trying to lure dangerous people out. Sure, why not? But catfishing others so you can profit is just a really rude and selfish thing to do. Even if the man was cheating on his wife, he definitely did not deserve death. As for the cold case, I mostly believe that the husband did it. He could very well have pretended to go to work, returned shortly to kill his wife, and left again for work, pretending nothing happened. Or it could have happened before he left for work, where maybe he had some secrets and Anthea found them and, who knows, threatened to expose them. Maybe he panicked and strangled her, then stabbed her multiple times hoping people would think it was a home invasion. Except, everything at the crime scene told a very different story. What are your thoughts on these cases? Which case bothered you the most? Thank you all again for using your precious time to listen to me. This episode was definitely not the same as the previous ones, and I hope it wasn't too much of an issue for you all. Please stay safe out there, and please be very kind to others. Till next time. Before I go, I would like to thank my two most recent reviews, Miss Demona from the US and Souza at Darkside from the UK. Thank you for your lovely reviews. I would also like to mention two things. My Patreon friends from Australia and Canada. So apparently, maybe because of COVID, I have tried to mail out your Patreon mail, but they got sent back, probably because of COVID. Anyway, they just said that um, the mail route was not working, so I will check on that. But no worries, I will definitely try to send them out as soon as things go back to normal. And another thing, if you have any case suggestions you would like me to cover, please, please send them to me by email because I have a bunch of social media uh, inboxes like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and everything kind of gets a little bit messy and I maybe overlook or forget about them. So if you have them in email form, it's easier for me to access them. Thank you very, very much. That would help me a lot. If you have suggested anything, just be patient and one day I will get around to it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.